Welcome to the Rockable Retail Podcast, Season 3, Episode 14. I'm Michael LeBlanc. And I'm Steve Dennis. Well, in this episode, Steve, you and I are talking about something that you and I have been involved in for a long time, e-commerce. Specifically, what we or analysts or everyone kind of gets wrong about e-commerce from a strategic perspective. Yeah, this is something I talk about a little bit in my book, but I've been really digging into and we've dug into in some past episodes, just that there's kind of this monolithic view of e-commerce as being one thing, which if we go back a while was largely true. But as various retailers have gotten into different sort of products and there have been different ways of fulfilling them, the definitions getting blurrier and blurrier and One of the things I thought would be good to talk about today is just, okay, let's level set what we're talking about, but more importantly, what's the so what? Because some of the takeaways from some of the high-level narratives, I think, aren't particularly useful. Uh, All right, we'll get to that in a bit. Let's now get to uh, News of the Week. Now, uh, we have got a bit of a new format for the listeners and viewers. We're going to focus on the top three things uh, that we're looking at for the week. So, leading off, again, we almost never talk about them, Amazon... (laughs) However, uh, they put out some results that were, uh, A, difficult to parse out what the heck's going on, and B, yeah. if you start to parse it out, don't look, at, don't look that great. What do you think? Big, big disappointment on, on the overall earnings front. They missed on sales, they missed on profits, and they guided lower for the balance of the year. Amazon manages to get away with the widest range of earnings. I think they said... Uh, our profits in the final quarter will be between zero and $3 billion or something like that, which is okay. Uh, Somewhere in there. Yeah. It's nice to be that big where plus or minus a couple billion is enough to satisfy wall street. But it was quite interesting yeah. when you look at some of the numbers and I just want to say, Andy Jassy, I'm sure you're listening. Let's try to provide a little bit more detail because it is really hard to parse out the numbers because there's this big Amazon warehouse or, um, uh, web services number than a bunch of other segment stuff, which blends things together. But the headline was that sales slowed down a lot. And if you look, I'm going to have to use my cheat sheet here. But if you yeah. look at some of the overall sales, web services was great. Uh, but online, first party online from Amazon was up only 3%, which is well below the overall growth rate for e-commerce. Their third party part was up, I guess, a little bit better than the industry up about 18%. Interestingly, physical retail, which is mostly Whole Foods, but the grocery store, four star, starting to become a bigger piece. That was up uh, 13% the first time in a while. But, you know, my conclusion, if you look at all the profitability in web services and you look at the lack of profitability in all other, uh, well, in all other is advertising, which is phenomenally profitable. Prime, which presumably is really profitable. Third-party services, yeah. Amazon takes a fee for that. So that would seem to be possible. Yeah. So I think all roads lead to their own retail being very unprofitable, which, um, you know, the, the long-time, long-term narrative had been that Amazon doesn't make any money in retail, and that's really not so true. But I think we're seeing a lot of recent suggestions that not everything is great in the retail part of their business. But two quick things on that. They did talk a lot about how their costs are going through the roof. Uh, I think everybody's getting hit with all the shipping and fulfillment stuff, though Amazon seems sure. to be worse on that front. Uh, labor yep. costs, those those sorts of things. So it's a little unclear whether there's kind of this long-term trend of this profit squeeze on fulfillment against 
retail or whether this is you know infrastructure building and whether this is things they need to do for the next few quarters to deal with the supply pain and labor shortages and covid yeah. covid overhang yeah, you could really make a career as you know our friend Brad Stone has done writing about Amazon because it's 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 so uh, interesting to pick apart. Jason Goldberg, for example, does a great job when he looks at the yeah. results, and and we've had him on we've had him on we've had them both on the show. All right, let's move on to our next thing. I think you described it as potentially the worst job in retail uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. from. <laughs> My one of my from one of my former companies, Levi Strauss, JCP has a new uh, president and CEO. Talk about that. Yeah, well, Mark Rosen, uh, senior executive at Levi Strauss, formerly was in a senior role in Walmart e-commerce. So, very experienced guy. I don't know him personally, but people that do have said great things about him. So, I am I'm sure that he is a great guy. But yeah, the JCP. CEO job. Um, good luck and Godspeed. That's all I have to say. I, I, I hate to be so negative on pennies, but the, it is yeah. such such a damaged brand with so much competition. And there are so many things that have to be radically changed in a very short period of time. They basically got a lifeline coming out of bankruptcy uh, because of this deal that the, some of the mall owners got involved with. So that does give them some flexibility that they might not otherwise have, but, uh, you know, good luck. I'm sending them a copy of my book. Uh, let's talk about rent, the rent, the runway. So they did their IPO. They went public, the stock popped, the stock dropped, uh, observations out of the numbers coming out of there and, and what's happening with our friend rent, rent the runway. A couple interesting things here. And I suspect we will be hitting on this just about every episode until the stock market crashes. <laughs> it's, uh, it's just this run. That's your watches. Um, such a why I mean could have happened as we're talking uh, just this yeah. run for these uh, digitally native brands new direct-to-consumer brands to go public taking advantage of kind of where they are in the investment cycle but the really really frothy valuation so rent the runway yeah they went uh, went public the other day uh, jumped at the outset then I guess cooler heads prevailed or some of the other people that made a little bit of money on the IPO uh, you know, took, took the exit ramp and, uh, you know, who knows by the time this episode comes out or people listen to it could be a different story, but, uh, I think we're just going to continue to see until the, the music stops, the pets.com part two hits us that, uh, people are going to be trying to get into the public markets as fast as possible. Uh, the thing to me that continues to be interesting about some of these brands, which have very high profiles, a lot of people following them for the last year being, you know, these super sexy, disruptive brands. Well, here's yet another one that is not a very big business. They do under the $200 million a year, which is nothing really in the whole world of apparel. And they managed to lose about a dollar ten, I think, for every dollar they, they took in. So another one of these profitless prosperity companies. Now, to be fair, they are obviously investing in the business and covid was not very friendly to anybody in yeah. the higher end part of the uh, the fashion business. So I think it's pretty hard yeah. to uh, to really look at the profitability numbers right now. But I think just like we're going to see with some of these other brands, 2023 is going to be much more challenging for e-commerce companies. We've got this kind of rebalancing to some normal. We've got a lot of pressures in terms of digital marketing and just a ton of competition. So I think most of these companies that have gone public or been public for a little while, each of the quarters going into next year are really going to be the ones that will 
give us more guidance as to whether this is a real business or just kind of a, uh, you know, a moment in time kind of business. Yeah, I, I, I think for them, it becomes a bit crowded. I was interested to read Daniel McCarthy, our, our great uh, guest. And number one <laughs> episode, by the way, congratulations, Daniel. Uh, he was talking about, uh, you know, as he pulls apart the numbers, he was talking about their depreciation rate on their rental goods, which he tracks at about 20%. So check yeah. out his comments on on Rent the Runway and their business model, which are very insightful, as you would, <laughs> as you, of course, uh, would imagine. Now, you did say e-commerce in 2023, not 2022 is going to be more Sorry, difficult. yes, that was, well, uh, yes. If I you want to, if you want to re- well, no, I did, I did it mean. It probably will be too. It probably will be too. Well, I think it, it's going to it's going to take a while, certainly for us to to sort through all the noise. But the, I did mean 2022, yeah. and the reason why I focused on 2022 is because we start to anniversary a lot of the COVID specific effects, and that will right. for the for the businesses that aren't for real that will have a significant yeah. dampening effect on their sales, and we'll start to be able to see more clearly whether the return on advertising is working well as some of these retailers go further into opening stores will start to really get a sense of, well, you know, can they open five or six stores? Can they open 50 or 60 stores or can they open a hundred plus as some of them have said they, they want to do. And that that's going to be pretty challenging. Well, Steve, we've just finished up our news of the week and I feel like I'm back in my, uh, as seen on TV days, but that's not all there's more. (laughs) Um, you and I have been doing uh, quite a few virtual keynote since covid and and as of lately and and uh, but actually you're speaking now you've done you're you know speaking to a live audience what's going on yeah i've just gotten back to a couple of in-person events relatively small ones but uh, the pace is picking up and actually i've got a pretty exciting event coming up in just about a month oh tell me tell us all about it Well, I'm going to be going back to the UAE on December 6th. I'll be doing the opening keynote for the Middle East Council on Shopping Centers and Retailers Annual Retail Congress in Dubai, which is back to a live event this year. Wow, you're uh, you're not just doing a live event in front of a lot of people. You're you're traveling. That's exciting. Uh, Well, theme of my talk is Omnichannel is dead. Retail's future is hybrid and harmonized. So try to be a little bit provocative, pick up on some themes from the book, other stuff I've been writing about. Well, you know, it's fantastic. Well, you know, to learn more about that event, we happen to have David McAdam with us. David, uh, welcome. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure, gentlemen. Thank you very much for including me on this podcast. Well, it's great. Uh, Listen, tell us uh, a little bit about yourself and what the uh, Middle East Council on Shopping Centers and Retailers is all about. Well, thank you. Um, I've been in the uh, Middle East region for the last 20 years, and and uh, the 20, 25 years before that, I was in Vancouver and British Columbia, the west coast of uh, North America. Since being in Dubai largely for this period of time, uh, I've been involved in probably 45 to 50 shopping centers in the region, working with the likes of Jones Lang LaSalle, and other major developers in the region that uh, have required uh, the kind of expertise that I deliver, which is essentially mm-hmm. a retail shopping center background for the last 40 years. So that's, uh, that's wow. my background. And about eight years ago, I, I took up running the Middle East Council of Shopping Centers and Retailers. And we now have 890 shopping centers under our umbrella mm-hmm. 
and we have about 3,600 uh, thereabouts people who are uh, affiliated with us on a regular basis, and we have over a thousand full-time members that interact with our team of five full-time employees that we have in Dubai. That's neat. So that's basically, um, you know, a group that brings like-minded people together to talk about the trends and stuff like that, right? And and um, regular communications. Now you're doing a conference, obviously. Steve is you invited to Steve to speak at it. I I was I was watching the promotional video. And I tell you, if the conference is half exciting as the promotional video, it's going to be fantastic. But uh, tell us all about the conference. Well, the conference. Thanks a lot, first of all, because the conference in 2019 was our last live event. We had a mm. virtual one last year, and it was as successful as you could imagine. But um, in 2019, we had 3,500 delegates over the three days. So it was a fairly successful event. Yeah. We hold it every year in the Ritz-Carlton DIFC, which is the Dubai International Financial Center. Um, and we have the ballroom and the, all of the areas around it for our uh, sponsors and exhibitors to, to open up to the public. So we're doing that again this year. This is our 27th year of hosting these events in Dubai. And I think that this year is going to be uh, very successful. I'll tell you why. We have had so many people sign up already earlier than even in the past years. We're completely sold out for our exhibition area. And our sponsorship grid is is full. I mean, we always have room for more sponsors. But we're, I would say, running at about 95% of where we were in 2019. So we're thrilled with the take-up of what we have seen and, uh, and I know that people are really very much looking forward to getting back and building those relationships mm-hmm. that they've built over the past number of years and sharing the information and listening to the experts like Steve to talk about new trends and maybe yeah. what we could be doing a little better here or learn from, you know, a different perspective, the same thing. So that's what we're after. And we're looking forward to it this year very much, December 6th and 7th in Dubai. Well, it's exciting, and, and uh, you know, it, it's great to be back in person, IRL, in real life, as, as it would say. And, and Steve, uh, that must be exciting for you. That's, uh, that's a bit of travel. I want to tell the listeners, don't worry, we're not going to miss a single episode uh, <laughs> while you wing your way to the other side of the world. But that's, that's exciting. David, it sounds like a, uh, just a great event, and it's great to bring people back together again. And, and uh, listen, Steve, will, um, Steve, I'm sure, will both entertain and and inform. So thanks for joining us on uh, Remarkable Retail to give us a snapshot about it. Well, my pleasure. And thanks very much for having me again. And uh, we really look forward to having Steve join us. And we're really appreciative of him coming all this way because I know it's not just a, a short flight. This is a fairly long event. <laughs> we do. And uh, we look forward to hosting you while you're here, Steve, and making sure you're well, well taken care of. Well, I'm, I'm very much looking forward to it. Thank you, and I guess I'll see you in a few weeks. All right, Steve, you and I both together have uh, actually a pretty good background in e-commerce. I uh, started it with Levi Strauss back in uh, the late 90s in the, uh, in the go-go, will the vendors win, will the retailers win, yeah. uh, and then Hudson's Bay and a bunch of other stuff. And you as well have a great pedigree in e-commerce. So this episode, we wanted to talk about e-commerce and frame it in such a way for the listeners where – so much has gone on, thanks to the COVID era, the great acceleration, you know, curbside, so many moving pieces, delivery. And we, I guess you and I were just talking off, Mike, we wanted to talk about 
and tell the listeners about what we think the right lessons to learn are from what we've just been through to help us think about what's coming next. Is that, is that the way uh, you're thinking about it uh, and e-commerce as well? Some of it's definitely specific to COVID. Some of it is also kind of the arc of e-commerce and how it's developed over the past 20 or 25 years. But I think there are a lot of kind of false narratives uh, or just misinformation Mm -hmm. that's out there. So some of it is about straightening that out if we can. But more to the point is what's the so what? Because I think sometimes we see whether it's reporters or investors or retailers taking perhaps the wrong or less than helpful message away from what's transpired for many years and in particular what's transpired over the past 19, 20 months. You know, it, it what amazes me sometimes is is uh, that we're still talking about e-commerce. Like, uh, you know, we were talking about it in the late 90s as the next coming of retail, and we're still talking about it all these years later. And as you say, often people are still getting some things wrong about e-commerce. And, and as you've often said, and maybe we're kind of foreshadowing the, the, the end, it sometimes can be thought of as a distinction without a difference when we talk about e-commerce and these, as you've often said, these blurring of the lines, um, which really right. kind of opens the mind to that, right? Well, I think at a certain point, it's all just commerce, right? Uh, customers are, most customers are active online. They're active in brick and mortar. There's often this symbiotic relationship between digital and physical. So maybe we're going to the store and then we choose to order online when we get home or we're researching online and then going to the store or ordering online, picking up at the store. So, so over the arc of e-commerce, we've, we've seen the blurring or blending uh, just become pretty much the, the core part of what we talk about when we talk about commerce um, one of the things that just to mm-hmm. kind of level set on some of the, the nomenclature, the other thing that I think has become interesting mm-hmm. over, I guess, really over the last decade or so is if we go back to when you and I first started working in e-commerce, mid to late 90s, e-commerce was really kind of a better mail order catalog. Uh, it was right. Right. You, you ordered online or you got marketed to online, maybe still got some catalogs, but you know, the marketing was was more digital. The ordering was more digital, but the way you got the product for the most part was it was picked, packed and shipped in a, what was previously a mail order catalog type of fulfillment. And it was sent to your home or office. So there was ordering online and there was online fulfillment. It was a pretty specific set of things. That's what Amazon originally did. The legacy retailers that we worked for, for the most part, that was how they got into into online was kind of this advanced catalog market. And the lines between brick and mortar shopping and online shopping were fairly distinct back in the day. What started to happen, and I guess for the most part, Amazon probably led this, is Amazon started to offer up more and more product categories Initially, most of those product categories, though, still fit into this fulfillment model. Ordered it online, fulfilled through a pick, pack, and ship sort of operation. But when they started to get into groceries, when they started to get into frozen, Mm. refrigerated, fresh product, well, most of that doesn't go through that or can't, as a practical matter, go through that system. So the fulfillment started to change to more local delivery. And then... A lot of retailers 
started to follow. So you started to get this blurring more on the fulfillment where, yes, I'm still ordering online. It's still largely digital in nature, but the supply chain part of it started to shift. And some people thought, well, why can't I order online, but actually pick it up in a store? Or why can't, if I bought something online, why can't I return it to a store? So suddenly the role of the stores in fulfillment started to become more pronounced. So the last few years pre-COVID, what we called e-commerce, which used to be basically I order online and it's shipped to me in a certain way. And frankly, stores don't have much to do with it other than maybe the marketing part of stores. You know, we've seen this, this world kind of come together, have it get more complex. And then when we get into the COVID era, well, number one, we have this distortion of, of online ordering for sure. But we also had yeah. this distortion of stores being involved in what we call e-commerce because we had a lot more curbside pickup. We had a lot more buy online, pick up in store. We had a lot more buy online, return to store. E-commerce orders are being fulfilled out of store stock and sent through the mail or uh, through some sort of local home delivery, whether it's shipped or Instacart. So, so when we talk about the growth of e-commerce, it's not that that first few waves of e-commerce, which was probably you know pretty much one way of doing things. Stores didn't matter. This last era, particularly during COVID, has really caused the blurring and the blending. And it turns out mm. that actually stores, in many cases, are pretty central to it. So, is it really e-commerce if I order it online, but the store delivers it <laughs> or comes out of store stock? I don't know. I don't want to get into the semantics. Yeah. It's really more the so what I think that that we should talk about. Well, it, many great points, and it, and it's it's a valuable lesson that we should learn from history because back in the late nineties, uh, mid nineties, early two thousands, it was like, why do we even need stores? Let's just have e-commerce. Uh, if e-commerce is where all the growth is going to be, why do we even need stores? And and I think you and I were probably we didn't know each other back then. But we we're probably thinking the same thing: is if you want to turn a billion dollar business into a hundred million dollar business, get rid of your stores, and you'll have a <laughs> yeah. you know a tiny e-commerce business. Uh, that's not the objective. That this this syncopation, the synergy that started to come together. And we're even seeing that now. We can talk about, you know, as Saks and even Macy's, you were in the news last week talking about uh, the pressure on Macy's to split the divisions. So these issues still come back and forth. Some are more structural than notional. I was going to say, well, there, there was, and it gets a little bit back to the point I was trying to make about the definition and, and making more than semantics. In the early days of Amazon, and, you know, Amazon's still, what, 40% of of all uh, e-commerce transactions in the early days of Amazon, where they had no physical presence, there was more of this zero sum game kind of, kind of notion, right? Than mm -hmm. anything that got lost to Amazon or Etsy or Wayfair or, you know, these real pure play eBay. online, yeah. eBay, that was coming at the, you know, that business was coming from somewhere and it's coming out of the legacy players. So there was this kind of zero sum game as stuff moves online physical retail loses. But as I was saying, as, as time has gone on, as legacy retailers have gotten very strong uh, .com presence, and, and as we've seen somewhat ironically, not only Amazon, but a lot of these digitally native vertical brands open their own stores. It's not a zero-sum game anymore. It's a both-and kind of thing. So, so mm. the retail apocalypse mm. narrative or the why should we invest in stores because they have no future. It's all moving online. Well, you know, that's, that's, that's a little bit overly simplistic in many, many categories. 
when we think about what uh, what the industry, what observers, what some of us sometimes get wrong about e-commerce, let's let's tick off a few boxes here. You mentioned, uh, you know, the of course the incredible growth in e-commerce that happened uh, because of COVID. How incredible was it really? When I think of incredible growth, where I think it is true that it it did actually move forward in years sure. is is in the grocery sector, but in general. You know, we heard this, it's gone for 10 years. It's gone. What do you think? I, I think it advanced an already predetermined growth pattern. Yeah. yeah. I wouldn't say a bit, a bit more than a bit. What do, you, what do you think and where do you think the differences, the lasting difference of the last 18 months is on, on e-commerce? Well, the, th- the thing that was clearly wrong, and, I, and I, I, got, uh, I think we talked about this on another episode. I got into kind of some interesting Twitter wars. And by interesting, I mean useless. <laughs> uh, was that when there was this narrative that that we've accelerated 10 years in eight weeks or whatever it was, and McKinsey wrote about it, and there was all sorts of stuff flying around the internet, it was pretty obvious, just you didn't have to know very much about math to realize that when the denominator crashes, it's pretty easy for the percentage to look higher. But there was going to be a point in time, save uh, you know the world being wiped out entirely, there was going to be a point in time in which stores opened and we were going to revert um, somewhat closer to the mean. So this whole 10 year idea, just the data clearly, uh, doesn't bear that out. It, it's more like two or three, depending upon the category. Uh, and I agree with you that grocery was the one which has been, you know, is a huge category has historically had very low penetration as compared mm-hmm. to apparel, which is like 30 and books and music and things like games, you know, 60, 70%. Yeah. So grocery was the one that could move the dial, the most and uh, certainly people's interest in curbside pickup, home delivery was greatly escalated. People were eating more meals at home anyway. So you had kind of the double whammy effect. So, uh, but you know, we're still at this period where we have seen for the most part um, settling into kind of that two or three year acceleration, but certain categories are still, still a bit distorted as people are, slow to go back to restaurants, slow to go back to vacation yep. travel, you know, those kinds yep. of things. Well, that that's a good point because in an upcoming episode, we're going to have two grocery experts talk about the future of grocery because there's a whole bunch of things that went on in that. Uh, so that's a bit of a, a, a tease for our next episode, Dr. Sylvain Charlebois. And uh, we've got uh, David Marquette from uh, Cantar to talk about the future of grocery, given what they've just been through. So that's a good uh, a good lead to that. The other thing we should probably talk about is is where it's, you know, the prognostications about suddenly where it's going to wind up. So depending on the way you categorize core retail or retail, what you put in, what you put out, you know, take out automotive, put in gas, you know, all these things, we're probably in probably 18, what in the US, 18 to 20% of core retail done online. Uh, E-marketers calling the ball at basically 25% by 2025, which is not, uh, that seems to be reasonable, some highs, some lows. Yeah, I you know I hear this fifty fifty you know fifty by twenty fifty I don't know if it's twenty fifty but this fifty percent blend e commerce it seems I don't know it seems far fetched to me or maybe maybe I'm thinking about it wrong maybe it's a definitional issue as you say you know well it is a little bit of a definitional issue if if we're talking about transacted online and more of the online fulfillment you know not involving a store. There's no way we get to 50%. Um, right. You know, some of it is just, I mean, I, I have generally used the, in terms of the e-commerce penetration 
that at least in the U.S., e-commerce has been picking up share at just over about one point for the last 10 years or so. That got pushed up, as we just talked about a little bit, by several points. But it looks like if you look at most of the forecasts, we're going to be back to more of, you know, the one to one and a half percent penetration, which is, I think, if you play around with the numbers, it's it's like a 10 to 15 percent overall growth. So to get to 50 percent on a larger base, uh, something dramatic would have to happen that would allow e-commerce to to grab share much more quickly than it did even during COVID. And who knows, like I can't think out to 2050, but we're certainly not on that trajectory. And it, it gets to one of the other points about what I think uh, is often thought of is that kind of anything that can go online will go online. And there's a couple things that we have to think about there. One is, you know, can go online. I mean, pretty much every product you can imagine short of getting a haircut. Sure. Uh, well, even there, like you can book an appointment online. Is that e-commerce? If you're going to get, you know, this is right. where we get into these sort of semantic issues. Yeah, yeah right, right. I can, right. You're, I can you're buy gas about online. online. You're booking it online. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The pro, you know, the performance. But for some reason, you know, that's people think of that. Well, that's clearly not e-commerce. But, well, if I order online, I basically reserve a product online and then I go to get it at a store and the product was already in that store, somehow that's e-commerce in a way that getting your hair cut isn't, I don't know. Again, you get into kind of these semantics issues, but, yeah. but I think we, you know, there are, there are practical limitations or shopper preference limitations to certain categories getting to that 30, 40, 50% share. I think you know, a lot would have to change for people to not want to, you know, for the most part, sit on that sofa, try on clothes, um, pick out the seafood at the counter. Mm-hmm. You know, there's, there's certain things where, not yeah. to say it doesn't happen at all, but there's certain things where right. physical retail really adds a lot of value. If you look at what RH has yeah. accomplished with their gallery stores, Incredible. they actually haven't invested Incredible. very heavily into e-commerce, even though home is a reasonably well-penetrated category. But that's because the stores add value. You can see all the product, you can try it, you know, not try it on, test it out, et cetera. So there, there's some yeah. inherent barriers, I think, to these very high uh, e-commerce penetration shares. The other one, which we should probably talk about a little bit more, is there's just the underlying economics. Some of these categories right. are just right. terrible e-commerce businesses. Selling a, a music, you know, selling an album online that can be digitally downloaded, well, that's a great that's a great business, right? <laughs> no product costs, no distribution costs, essentially. Uh, trying to get groceries to be profitable uh, or some other product categories, you know, there's a lot of demands there. So I think the, the profit headwinds or the amount of investment that would have to go into some of these to take that, that e-commerce penetration yeah. from 5 to 15 or from 15 to 30, 30 to 60, uh, we shouldn't lose sight of that because it can be significant and it's been kind of glossed over because of what people had to do during COVID either to stay in yeah. business or just respond to, to the crisis. Now there is a school of thought, you know, the old saying in retail, right? Volume solves some sins that as the growth of e-commerce grows pragmatically, uh, a courier can do 10 times more drops as they would say in a neighborhood. So there starts sure. to become an efficiency as e-commerce. Like I wonder if there's a, a tipping point, 
in some categories. You know, for example, if you're if you're a big grocer and you're running e-commerce, at some point, um, you know, it's very expensive to deliver ten orders a day. But if you're delivering five hundred orders a day, you know, the incremental expense. So I think on the other side of the of the uh, economics discussion is there's a lot of great retailers who are making good money. I mean, you you're familiar with Land's End. You came out of the Sears organization. I can think of a lot of retailers who actually make good money doing e-commerce. And one of the things sure. that it leads us into a discussion on is how fast it actually needs to get to the doorstep. Right. What do you think about this kind of race, literally a race to the doorstep? It feels to me like it's a bit of a mugs game that's been set up by some big players because they have experience or they have scale, but it's not always the case. And it can be a huge cost driver that kind of eliminates oh. your profitability. Where do you where do you think Absolutely. it's going? This the speed to well, speed lo- to the doorstep. I love to quote my friend Seth Godin quite a lot. And one of my favorite quotes from Seth is: "The problem with the race to the bottom is you might win, or worse, finish second. And I think <laughs> this is definitely great, great quote. An issue. Quote. Um, well, to, to your earlier point, uh, having worked in last mile delivery off and on for many many years, it's not so much that volume automatically. Uh, solves all problems or cures all sins, but the, but the root density with home delivery is critically important. And it does start to change the game. If you're talking about home delivery product and expensive to handle product, refrigerated, fresh, that kind of, you know, things that are, you can't send for the most part through UPS or whatever. So, uh, so I think if you're Amazon, if you're Walmart, if you're target, uh, and, and, that may be the end of the list. You are very focused on getting your supply chain last mile delivery configured in such a way to get those economics to work. Everybody else, it's really hard to, to play catch up. And I think mm. it looks like Walmart, Target, a bunch of others are in this convenience war where if two days was great a few years ago, then Next day is better. One day is better. Next day is great. Then same day. And if same day, then it's within an hour. And these are very expensive things to do. And yeah, I think part of where you're going is, you know, does the customer really need it? In many cases, no. If you offer it, will the customer, I mean, let sample of one here, but I was ordering some things from Amazon and they said, well, you can get it in two days or you can get it in one day. Also ordered something from Best Buy. You can get in two days, you can get in one day, you get store pickup, same cost. I was like, well, I don't know, why not tomorrow? Do I need it tomorrow? No, but you offered it to me, right, <laughs> you know, so right. you've, you've, you've well, would, allowed yeah. me to pick the more expensive option and maybe I'm a jerk, you know, or maybe I shouldn't be worried about their supply chain costs, yeah. but we've created a lot of things in the system, you know, free returns drives a lot of costs. So there's a lot of things that have become yeah. kind of table stakes or retailers are making table stakes that everybody feels or many people feel like they've got to compete with, but ultimately it makes the economics worse. So I have a, I have a theory um, hmm. that What's your theory? this is Amazon's, you know, part of Amazon evil genius. Uh, you know, they yeah. are the leader here. They are investing massively. They can, and they're just like, come follow us down the rabbit hole or whatever is the right <laughs> analogy. Like yeah. go ahead and make my day. Yeah. We'll, we'll, <laughs> cause we'll keep ratcheting it up and we yeah. can afford to do it. Maybe not over the long term, but we're in position to do it. And every time you try to keep up with us, 
you just make matters worse. And eventually you're going to say, you know, no mas, I can't like, either. You're like your, your board or your investors are going to go, what, what the hell are you doing? And you're going to back yeah. off. And then that's just going to allow Amazon to gain even more market share. So it is, that's a long way of saying, I mean, it's, it is a bit of a race to the bottom and, you know, only a few people have a chance of, of, uh, surviving that much less winning it. I want to wrap this part of the episode just talking about where we where it all began structurally in some ways. I remember the days in the organization, uh, you would say, the executives would say, we're going to launch an e-commerce business and we're going to compete. We're going to structure it differently to be a whole different department right. in a whole different building. And your job is to take share away from the brick and mortar guys. And I want right. some good old fashioned competition. And from that, you know, from that intensity of that competition, great things will happen for the shareholders. Okay. Yeah. Fast forward 25 years, and we've still got some organizations who are saying, you know, we're better off spinning. Maybe there's some financial shenanigans or financial benefit. But, you know, we were, again, we were talking off mic, and you were in the, in, on CNBC with Lauren talking about, well, you know, maybe there's an upside to that, and, and the consumer doesn't really experience anything different in a perfect world, and maybe the accountabilities change a bit. Talk about your, the pro and con about doing this kind of spin. Been and financial wizardry. Yeah, I was thinking, I remember when I was working on my book and I, I talked about um, how when I was at Sears, we very much built the dot-com operation with the idea that we would always be integrated with the store, that we were one brand operating in different channels, even though we gave them some room to run where Walmart was opening up and Kohl's and Target and a bunch of others were, were doing the spin-out thing. So when I've talked to reporters over the last couple of days, I'm like, I feel like, you know, 2001 call that wants its press release back uh, because this <laughs> this separation thing is such an old idea and yeah you know have we learned nothing in 20 25 years right so <laughs> it is it is bizarre uh, the the kind of counter I mean clearly there are, there are things going on in the financial markets uh, where these valuations sure. are I I think artificially high so I would hurry. If I'm them to try to get, you know, if you're going public as a <laughs> vertical brand or you're spinning out like go, 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 because, uh, you know, whether it's two weeks from now, two months from now or two quarters from now, this will end badly. Having said that, one of the things that I think is interesting. So my experience um, in trying to pull things together first at Sears, then at Neiman Marcus and over the last few years with several clients is it's hard enough to be customer centric and get the different silos in the organizations to cooperate when you're under the same roof and you have the same CEO and executive structure. So the idea that you would the same bonus deliberately bonuses you know. and set like you name it, right? Same offices. So the idea that you would intentionally separate them as Sachs is doing as Macy's and maybe Coles is rumored to be doing just seems like insanity and seems like it's an impossibility. However, one thing that apparently Sachs has done, which people may have read about, is they've created all these agreements about how dot-com is going to serve stores and vice versa. It still seems incredibly cumbersome. It seems next to impossible to fully value the advertising role of a store. Or if I see a digital ad, does that drive me? Like, There's tons of attribution issues, which I don't know how you could ever completely get your head around it in a fair way. But... To actually sit down and instead of negotiating among colleagues how to get things done and having the CEO be Solomon-like mm. in the decisions, 
to actually yeah, go yeah. through and hire Bain or McKinsey or somebody to like dissect this and create agreements and reduce these processes. Maybe that actually addresses some issues maybe. in a more aggressive way. Yeah. And because it's a transaction and a deadline, it's like, well, we got to go figure this out. It's not like, oh, we'll, we'll figure out how There's to a, find our marketing departments someday. Yeah. And here's, here's the SLA. You said you do X and now it's in Y as opposed to the kind of the casual inferences, right? right. It's black letter law in the SLA. Um, yeah. I hadn't thought of it that way. That's a really, that's a really interesting way to kind of wrap this up that there's yeah, potentially a bit of upside to this, this stuff yeah. that's going on that, ta- as you say, takes I, us back to I will to say the, though, I think even if you do oh, that perfectly, yeah. which looks perfect, but even if you do that extremely well, yeah. the thing that I have the, my hardest the hardest time getting my head around is there are so many intent intangible factors of brand and so many issues yeah. of, of attribution. So if you're Macy's and you're spun out, what is the value of the equity that has been built by Macy's over all more than a century? What is the value of driving past that Macy's store that may, that makes you go, Oh, you know, maybe I'll buy something online. And the Amazon so, ad on the top of it, yeah. yeah, right. So, so I think the and you know, and, and similarly from digital to physical. So even if you say, well, you know, it costs yeah. eight dollars for you to send somebody to go pick up the order and take it to curbside, so I'm going to pay you eight dollars as a service. That's pretty straightforward. Sure, people could argue about what the right. right number is, but that activity is a lot easier to reduce to practice and come up with a cost for it. But the brand value, yeah. the experiential value the acquiring customer in one channel who then becomes a repetitive online customer or acquiring somebody online becomes a better customer is, you know, people have been trying to do that well for, for ages. Nobody, as far as I know, has done it in a very comprehensive way and it's not going to get any better uh, for a given brand if you split things out. So that, that's the one that I think is, is Mm. the hardest to see how you, how you could fairly address that. But Mm. we'll see. I think the Saks thing is going to happen. Uh, I think the Macy's Coles and some others are probably either uh, cooler heads will prevail or when we start to see the moderation in e-commerce numbers, people's ideas of what the dot-com is worth will be tempered a bit, I think. Or the financial momentum will just take them over the top and they'll do it anyway because they, as you say, see an opportunity that doesn't come along every year to add that kind of enterprise value to a place like Macy's, right? All right. Well, listen, uh, great episode talking about uh, uh, e-commerce. I'm sure not the last time we'll be talking about it. And uh, next week, we'll be talking about uh, it a bit more, actually, in the context of grocery and a whole lot more. So until then, let's wrap this episode. If you like what you heard, please follow us on Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, or your favorite podcast platforms. So you can catch up with all our great interviews. Subscribe so that just automatically shows up. Uh, tell your friends and and also uh, in new insights and new episodes will show up every week so tell your friends uh, because that will help us uh, share the word the good the, the, the good wisdom now be sure and check out <laughs> and be sure and check us out on uh, our new youtube channel not so new anymore we've got a couple episodes up there uh, and just look for remarkable retail and i'm steve dennis you can check out more of my work at my website stevenpdennis.com or on forbes or on Twitter. And please check out my second edition of my book, Remarkable Retail, How to Win and Keep Customers in the Age of Disruption, available just about everywhere books are sold. And I'm Michael LeBlanc, producer and host of the Voice Retail Podcast and a bunch of other stuff. You can find me on LinkedIn, learn about me on meleblanc.co. 
All right, Steve, great episode. Look forward to chatting again next week. Be safe and uh, have a great rest of your day. 